0: Our guest this morning is renowned businessman, dealmaker, resource industry veteran and sports owner Tony Sage. Throughout a career spanning in excess of 30 years, Tony has been at the forefront of Australian business, particularly through his corporate interests in Oakwood Proprietary Limited, International Goldfields, Cauldron Energy and Cape Lambert Resources. In one of his most infamous deals, he sold a magnetite project in 2008 to a Chinese corporation for a speculated $400 million, having purchased the asset less than 18 months earlier for $20 million. Tony is also well known in business and sporting circles for his ownership of A-League club, Perth Glory FC as well as his philanthropic endeavours, particularly through his involvement in breast cancer care, WA and Parkerville Children and Youth Care. He is a graduate of Edith Cowan University, having completed a Bachelor of Commerce and is also a Chartered Accountant. Tony, pleasure having a chat with you this morning. To begin with, for those of us over in the East Coast still suffering from the lingering effects of ongoing lockdowns, take me through the current environment in Western Australia in terms of business sentiment and consumer confidence.
1: Yeah, look, uh, very good. The travel obviously is a, is uh, not so good, but uh, what's uh, happening over here is pretty spectacular. Uh, the WA government will announce a $5 billion surplus today, so which will be injected back into the community, especially in the health sector, which isn't faring too well over here. But business confidence is high unemployment is uh, is low. In fact, uh, the problem that we're facing over here is lack of uh, people, especially skilled people, uh, not only in the mining, but also the construction industry. So, you know, the hard borders that our government has put up has really affected the ability to increase that $5 billion surplus by having more miners uh, out on, on the mine sites uh, and in the construction area here. So, our hospitality industry, although suffering a little bit from no visitors to the state, however, our uh, Perth residence, Broome, has never been busier. Down south uh, in the Margaret River region has been very, very busy. And again, because no backpackers and no foreign students are over here to fill some of these uh, vacancies, you know, it's uh, a shame that some of these places are closed on certain times because so they just can't get the staff to run them. So. State's booming, but lingering problems, obviously, with uh, lockdowns. So I think our record speaks for itself. I think we've only had seven deaths and the lockdowns that we've suffered have been very, very mild compared to what's happened in Sydney and Melbourne. On the broader
0: economy, what are you saying are the key opportunities for Australia in the immediate term, particularly once those domestic and international borders reopen?
1: Well, I think uh, everybody across the world that's got a spare dollar, and I think a lot of people will, will travel. And I think the travel industry, the tourist industry will eventually get back to where it was. I think there'll be an initial rush, especially of Australians leaving to go overseas. But a lot of overseas people see Australia as as one of the safe places. Look, uh, England now is open completely and they're getting 3000 cases a day. If you read a newspaper in Australia, especially in West Australia, when there's one case, everyone goes crazy. But they're living with the uh, outbreak quite well over there. They've got their jabs up and, you know, they're basically living a normal life even with 3000 cases a day. So the mentality of our political class has to change slightly to take advantage of what I see would be a huge boom for tourism because Australia is seen as pretty well a safe haven around the world. Now, you've been intricately involved in the resources
0: industry for many decades now. Walk me through your perspective on the challenges of the Australia-China trade relationship.
1: Look, difficult... Unfortunately, uh, politics again uh, has uh, reared its head and um, the Chinese do want to punish Australia. I I see that every day in different industries. However, on the plus side for uh, WA especially, uh, the iron ore is one area that they can't really affect too much with Brazil being offline for a couple of years for various reasons, COVID being one of them, but the infrastructure in their dams, etc., with the big uh, collapse uh, with the BHP dam uh, and a lot of the other dams uh, on the tailings uh, are affected. So they've really been affected. Africa is really off limits at the moment. Very little is coming out of Africa. So really Australia is gonna be their only supplier. So on that front, we've been very, very lucky that they can't um, affect the prices too much and their intake too much. Yeah, I reckon for at least another 18 months, maybe after that, they may be able to. But on all other fronts, yeah, it's it's a, it's a real problem. And uh, I can't see any easy way out of it now that uh, Australia's put itself all in with this uh, attack uh, in relation to uh, where the Wuhan virus came from.
0: Should the relationship deteriorate further between the two nations, what do you see the key growth markets for exporting Australian resources to in future?
1: Uh, I see India as a massive... Uh, opportunity. If you look at the trade figures between Australia and India, it's only going up in in one direction. They've got Uh, 1.3 or 4 billion people. So that's one avenue. I see trade between us and the UK going up now that they're uh, finalised their Brexit negotiations. They're out. So I see a big, big increase in trade uh, with the UK in many different products going forward so that's another area and uh you know a lot of the countries in our region vietnam wants to be a, a big steel producer for example so uh, we might see a shift of steel pr- producing coming from viet countries like vietnam and cambodia where they've got now some energy to produce uh, these sort of products uh Believe it or not, Vietnam imports so much raw steel from China and then they uh, repackage it to, to specialised steel. So that, that they're getting bigger and bigger in that. So I see them maybe in the future uh, being able to produce steel themselves. So they might be a net importer of iron ore and coal. So, yeah, those sorts of uh, areas uh, I see plenty of growth in.
0: How are you positioning your business interests to capitalize on the next wave of investment into resources and which subsectors do you think offer the greatest opportunity?
1: Well, I've uh, concentrated on three, iron ore, copper, and lithium. The whole world is going green. I think even now with Biden in power in the US, the the, the shift has been enormous. You would not have got Ford Motor Company, GM and Chrysler in America saying that they want to build uh, only electric cars by 2030. The key components of those three products, uh, those three companies would be iron ore, copper, and uh, lithium. It takes five times more copper to run a EV than an internal combustion engine car. So uh, copper's already gone up about 50% in in the last six months, but virtually every European country uh, has said no, internal new internal combustion cars will be allowed on the roads from 20 some countries 2025 some countries 2030. So copper is uh, obviously a big one, lithium obviously, uh, for the lithium ion batteries. So um, yeah, I've uh, sort of uh, concentrated on uh, those industries. I think uh, in my industry, rare earth is very, very important. China produces 97% of the world's rare earth, and they stopped exporting rare earth components uh, because they need it themselves. So um, yeah, it's a big scramble around the world to get alternate supply other than from China. So. They're the sorts of uh, commodities. A lot of things go with that, like nickel. Uh, So I think we're going to be in for a long bullish run in most of those commodities I've just mentioned.
0: I read recently that one of your businesses, FE Limited, is implementing a product hedging strategy in relation to iron ore prices to protect against volatility. Take me through this decision and your thought pattern behind it.
1: Well, with uh, the prices uh, at record levels and i just didn't believe it would be sustainable uh, along with uh, our management team. So what we decided to do uh, when it was re- close, to, close to its peak, I mean, it'd come off a little bit, just say, look, uh, I think we need to, to hedge um, our, our luck here. We're in a position now of strength. If it goes to $270, so what? We're making enough money at, at this price if we hedge it here. So we've hedged a, a, a portion of our um, expected uh, Uh, output. So I think our first ship goes out around the 25th of this month, and uh, we're going to get a lot higher than the current spot price uh, because we've hedged it. So we're, I'd say millions and millions in front on our hedges at the moment, if we close them out and just exported uh, the ore at at current prices. So so yeah, look, I think uh, hedging is a very, very important tool. I see iron ore price stabilising. I don't think there's enough supply coming from other sources. So Australian iron ore will still be in a pretty good spot for at least the next 18 months. And, you know, a lot of the iron ore producers here in Australia are profitable at at $50 to $60 a tonne. And and we're more than double that now. So it's a good strategy if you're a high cost producer. We're a high cost producer because we're a long way from the coast.
0: Let's talk about lithium, which you mentioned earlier. I understand it's undergone an incredible level of market interest and investment following the rise of EVs and constant demand for consumer electronics and that sort of thing. What trends are you seeing in this space?
1: Well, look, uh, the only trends I see is up. I mean, we looked, if you go back even seven months, the hydroxide prices, what really everyone looks at, uh, was about $6,500 a tonne. It's now $14,500 a tonne. So, More than double in the last seven months and that's only because of policy changes especially the us uh, as i mentioned earlier in this uh, podcast that's just been enormous shift after trump biden's come in and says look evs is the way to go he's convinced three of the biggest manufacturers in the world to go along and they've come out with their policy statements so you know, the world's lithium producers now uh, are licking their lips. Uh, There's a few that went belly up about eight or nine months ago in Australia because the price had fallen so much. I mean, uh, Pilbara, for example, one of the biggest producers in Australia, they were selling uh, their ore about $900 a ton 18 months ago. It went down to 350 So it took a couple of the other uh, producers went to the wall. Pilbara was smart enough. They picked up those assets, and now they're selling it at over a thousand dollars a ton. So big profits. So the the trend um, is going to be lithium for the short term. I mean, if you look at all other technologies, hydrogen's the one that uh, everyone's talking about at the moment, and I can see a use for hydrogen in the 2030s and the 2040s. But right now, uh, lithium. And its uh, base of products for EVs is uh, the one that's uh, really going to take hold. And as you're right, a lot of people don't realise consumer electronics. When's the last time you saw someone with a drill with a cord on it? So all these battery packs, uh, electric bikes, for example. I mean, uh, 15 million alone electric bikes are sold in China every year. 15 million. Okay, So all of these uh, batteries come from uh, three or four main products. You've got cobalt, you've got lithium uh nickel sulfide so so those sort of products so lithium is going to be a, a major player for the next uh, few years anyway a lot of the, the gigafactories and everything all tooled up for lithium-ion batteries so even if a new technology does come along in the next three or four years it'll take 10 years to implement Outside of the
0: resources industry, are you investing in any other asset classes? And if so, which sectors are appealing to you?
1: Oh, look, uh, technology is always uh, one that I've loved and I've uh, invested in. I- was an earlier take up and way, way, way back. Microsoft, uh, Facebook, those sorts of companies. Uh, Afterpay. Um, so yeah, that that sector is booming at the moment, right across the world. And if you pick the right product and you you pick the right management team, you you're usually on a winner. So yeah, that's a a very, very good sector. Look, I think tourism over the next. Um, a few years will take off again and I think if you're in uh, uh, any of those sectors uh, like a Qantas has been bashed, uh, Virgin's been bashed and those sort of sectors will uh, be on the improve over the next two or three years. It depends what time frame you're talking about. I mean in, in uh, my business it's always long term. I mean uh, finding a discovery and then getting it into uh, a mining is a long long process and some of those overnight successes that you hear about uh, taken a long 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 time. Uh, even after pay was many years in the making. So uh, yeah, but those sort of sectors I like. Construction um, is up and down. I, I'm not a, a fan, you just don't know which uh, end of the cycle it's in. Uh, and that just depends on uh, how many people can come to Australia. I mean, uh, at the moment, uh, the immigration uh, numbers are very, very low. If and when uh, COVID uh, mentality on government is, is uh, eased, uh, how many people are going to be entering Australia? So. You know, if we're going to get two or three or 400,000 people over the next couple of years uh, coming in to permanently settle here, construction uh, will be maintained. But, you know, those sorts of things are beyond my control, those policy things. But uh, earlier when I said technology uh, sector is a very, very interesting sector.
0: As I mentioned in the opening, you're also the sole owner of Perth Glory Football Club, having purchased the club following the 2008-2009 season. Take me through the decision to become a sports owner.
1: I grew up um, in England and in Italy until I was about 11. So football, soccer, as they call it here, was in my blood. When we moved out to Australia, my father wanted us to uh, integrate more into the community. So I I started off playing Aussie rules Then we moved to Sydney. I played rugby league and then we moved to New Zealand. I played rugby union because I always listened to my dad, uh, you know, uh, and you make more friends. uh, In all of the places that we ended up football, Real football, as I call it, uh, wasn't uh, the best thing to integrate. So I played uh, all these other sports, loved them. I mean, I still I went to the Wallabies game on the weekend. Uh, I, I still followed the Eagles in the AFL. So I am a sports fan, but uh, football's always been in my blood. And uh, I did a deal with uh, Frank Lowy back in the nineties. And, uh, he remembered that uh, we talked about football a lot and gave me a call saying, look, there won't be no Perth glory. We need some investors. And that's when I put my hand up, no regrets, uh, love the club. Uh, I always went to the games prior to me becoming an owner back when it was started up by Nick Tana in 96. So I was always, uh, at the ground watching. So I love football and, uh, yeah, look, it's, uh, opened up a lot of doors. Though, uh, funny enough, I didn't realize. At the time but a lot of my business deals through africa south america and china have come through football so not only um, has it uh, given me a lot of pride and personal satisfaction it's also helped my businesses i probably reckon i've done about one and a half billion dollars worth of deals directly through my ownership of uh, perth glory Uh, so yeah so it's a bittersweet i mean i've been in seven grand finals haven't won one that's across the women as well as the men over the journey, but uh, that elusive premiership uh, will come hopefully one day. From a global perspective,
0: there's been recent appetite from private equity groups and investment banks in purchasing stakes in sporting clubs. I read that Macquarie, I think, have got a team over in England that are looking at that exact thing. What's your assessment of the landscape from an ownership point of view?
1: It's been a fantastic ride uh, over the last uh, 18 months. Uh, We got permission by the FA to split. Uh, That happened officially on the 1st of July. So we now own the league itself. So uh, the 12 owners now have got an 8 point something percent share of the league uh, individually. So I own basically 8% of the whole league. That does present opportunities for private equity to come in and help. Uh, You look at what happened in New Zealand with the All Blacks. They sold, I think, 10 or 20% of, of the All Blacks to a private equity group. Private equity now owns most of the leagues in Europe. So, look, it is a fascinating uh, opportunity for football in this country to, to monetize and uh, get a lot of um, equity cash into the, into the sport. We've signed a fantastic deal with uh, Paramount Viacom CBS through Channel 10 here. So, that means there'll be a lot more visualization of our sport rather than just being stuck on uh, one platform. And I I see that as a a good opportunity for a private equity group to come in. And I think uh, the owners all agree with me and something may happen um, in the short term on that. So number one, uh, I will reduce my stake, but uh, number two, there'll be a lot of cash available to promote the sport, which has been lacking for 15 years since the A-League started. Uh, The FA obviously has a huge cost base that they had to uh, fill and Most of that money came from uh, the A-League and its sponsors and its uh, TV revenue. So now that that has uh, uh, gone, uh, the owners will be able to spend a lot more uh, themselves on promoting the game in the country.
0: How would you assess the strength of the A-League competition currently and what more needs to be done to drive revenue, broadcasting rights and fan engagement?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, We've only just taken over. So we're about two months into our ownership of, of the whole league. We're in a pandemic. You can ask the AFL and NRL this, it doesn't make it easy to, to get a fixture out, especially with borders being closed. And you know, we've got five teams in one state that's got hard borders and uh, uh, three in another state that's got hard borders. So it's gonna be a difficult, so we're, we're in a hugely difficult landscape. We wish we weren't in this landscape to start, uh, as owners, but we are. But we've managed to do a TV uh, deal that's double what it was last year. So that's fantastic in, in itself. And we've managed to bring along a, a partner that um, is huge. I mean, Paramount Plus, uh, uh, which is the platform that will go on, uh, is is massive compared to what uh, Fox was. And uh, the link with Channel 10 and going to free-to-air is also huge for us. But what needs to be done? Uh, we need to get our sport uh, really linked to grassroots. I've done that here in Perth. Uh, I've got uh, 12 teams in the local competitions from the under 12s right through to the under 20s. Uh, so that's helped. We've been doing that for four or five years here. So that fan engagement, that player engagement with the community, having teams in the, in the local leagues has helped. But I think the most important thing is gonna be uh, what you'll see on uh, about promotion of the league, how we promote it, not only on uh, the platform, but also on free to air TV, radio, et cetera, et cetera. That hasn't happened for years and years and years because the FA needed money to run their own organisation. And like I said, money was diverted away from the A-League for so long and that will change. And uh, we uh, uh, hope to uh, have a fantastic product on the park as soon as uh, COVID restrictions allow us to.
0: Now I know you've got places to be, so let's close out our discussion with Tony Sage, the person. You've been an active deal maker for many years. What are the fundamentals involved in deal making?
1: Oh, number one, listening. Uh, you've got to listen to whoever you're doing a deal with. Look, it's very rare that um, you know, two people go into a, a deal and one person wins big and one person wins uh, loses badly. So you've got to go in with open eyes and be able to listen to see what the other side wants in any negotiation. And then you've just got to learn to adapt your um, goals to, to what the seller or, or, or whatever you want to do. So th- they're the key things. I mean, if you don't listen, you go in there and say, I want this for $100. And he says, I want $200. You're never going to get anywhere. So you've got to be able to learn to compromise. And I think uh, they're the keys to any deal that you do. You're going to listen to whoever you're doing the deal to. You've got to adapt you'll need, and then you've got to compromise. So if you, if you don't do any of those things, there's a winner and a loser, and no one wins in that situation. You've got to have a, a, a deal that everyone wins. And in, in a lot of cases, everyone does win. Tony Sage,
0: fantastic chatting with you this morning and a fascinating example of a successful Australian business owner and a business success story. Thanks for your time. No problem. Thank you very much.